after a brief holiday. I had a terrible cold, so it wouldn't have been fun to do any recordings, much less listen to me. So much is going to happen this year for Fraudish. I'm very excited to introduce Phil Davis and Katie Intrader from At Data. This episode is all about email. Email etiquette, email addresses, sticky emails. Do you still have your first email address? I do, but I'm not going to tell you. I would also like to take this time to announce the relaunching of my newsletter. This will be a bi-weekly newsletter. Use your email to sign up, get it, and chat GPT will not be writing it. So let's get started with Phil and Katie. Okay, fraudish listeners, we are back from our break and I am so happy to have with us Phil and Katie. Now you're going to hear more about Phil and Katie, but we're going to get started with a little bit of a lightning round. So either one of you can answer whoever's quickest on the button. When I say fraud, what do you think of? So immediately I think of malicious intent. Okay. Like it. Malicious and intent. Okay. Um, How about pop culture and fraud? Yeah, I mean, so obviously there's the guy from FTX who defrauded everybody in the crypto space. Um, one of my coworkers was telling me today about a company that JP Morgan acquired. This is a really interesting story. Frank Bank that I had not heard of where they created a fake list of customers saying that they had many, many millions and really they only had a couple hundred thousand. So I think there's a lot of stuff happening in our daily lives that's you know fraudulent and surprising. Not to mention that uh, the young woman who created the fraud, if you went to her LinkedIn page, she's the most legitimate LinkedIn page you've ever want to see. So certainly... Someone failed in their due diligence. I think for me, when I think of pop culture, I think politics have become pop culture and there's fraud on all all sides of the aisle. Yeah, yeah. I think there might be a story that or a documentary that's going to come out about J.P. Morgan's latest misstep or lack of due diligence yeah. or we, we like to call it don't diligence. Um, yes, yeah, so. it, definitely, it definitely was. As a email veteran, there's like five ways you could poke holes in their in this in their assumptions okay that is the perfect segue okay so phil why don't you introduce yourself first and then katie and give us a bit about your not only your company at data but how you got to where you are sure very good yeah so i'm phil davis um, and I'm our chief business revenue officer. Um, I joined at Data nine years ago when they acquired my company. I was the CEO of Rapleaf at the time. I've been in the email space for 21 years. Um, back before there was canned spam, you could send out 200 million emails in a day. No one blocked you. There was there weren't any, most of these ESPs weren't around. You know, it was kind of like a wild west. And you know, email was super cool. Like people were like, wait a second. I could mail an offer to my customer and it was like super exciting, right? And um, and so certainly we've come a long way in terms of both the technology and the way we think about our customers and what our customers demand and in terms of how they want their digital experience to be. So it's been a really great run. It's super interesting. Um, at Data, we are a, a data technology company. We're really the email experts. So in a lot of way, we provide email experts, a lot of the other data companies. So we're almost like a data's company, data company in that case. Um, but 
What's super unique is that we help our clients get more out of their first party data so they can maximize the value of the customer prospect that they acquired and they could take more advantage of our data solutions to maximize the value of the people that are currently in their database. And then Katie and I have been working together for nine years, the day we came together. So I'll let Katie introduce herself and talk about that. It's actually kind of a funny story. So we started the same day, but actually met probably 11 or 12 years ago on an airplane on the way to a conference down in Miami, I was working for a different company in their email marketing department and and Phil sat next to me and we started just chatting, being friendly. And fast forward two years later, we reconnected in kind of a funny way. I was looking to get into kind of the startup world and wanted to network with him. And he uh, ended up hiring me into a sales role. And so I um, am now the VP of business development here at at Data. um, And I bring in new business and I manage some of our strategic partnerships. Yeah, there, I I just love your story. And we talked about this, we did a pre-call and we talked about this and I have met people on airplanes, but I haven't gotten a job yet, but I love this. (laughs) Like, I I mean, yeah, because I'm all about networking. Yeah, well, she, when she came and she was like, hey, I'd like to get some career advice, how to get into the startup world. And my advice to her was to to kill her resume, don't do anything and come work for me. <laughs> and right. here we are nine years later. So yeah, it's a good one. You got, you never know who you're going to meet and it, it pays to be friendly and kind to people that you're, you know, that you end up sitting next to, whether it's at a conference or it's on an airplane or wherever it may be, because you just never know when you could run into them again. So yeah. yeah, and I can't remember, I think it might be Francesca Gino who just did a LinkedIn post about um, your connections for getting jobs aren't your like close connections. They're actually kind of a little bit removed. And I would yep. say meeting someone on an airplane is a little bit of a removed connection. Just a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had never met prior and, you know, now we're incredibly good friends. So it worked oh, out okay. well. I got to ask this question. Were you back in lemming class or uh, in first class? <laughs> we were back in lending class. In fact, we were uh, in an exit row. So we also were prepared to save everybody on the flight <laughs> if necessary. <laughs> oh my God, that is that is so awesome. I love that. <laughs> okay, so at data email. Now, um, we also asked this question before. I have five e- emails. So can you give us some statistics about like how many emails and, and Katie, we had also talked, you had used the word sticky and that just stuck with me. Ha ha. Yep. Yeah. So, so obviously at data, we've been around for 22 years at this point, and we've built out this universe of email addresses tied to postal addresses. And so what we've really sort of figured out is that every individual has somewhere on average around five emails. Sometimes they might have more, sometimes they might have a few less, but what we're able to identify is typically their most active and deliverable and most widely used email address. And what we decided 22 years ago, our CEO is that, you know, PII and sort of the the input field of tying data to things is always going to be changing, right? But he sort of put all of his chips down that email was going to remain the stickiest. And it's true. Email still now is stickiest form of communication in terms of no matter what job you're at, 
um, no matter where you live, you're going to keep your personal email. And so that's kind of how we've built our business and even our fraud business as well um, is all tied around a particular, you know, your your email address. Yeah. And what's interesting is like at data is a combination of five companies that came together through acquisitions or mergers. And in all cases, the, the CEO's vision was that an email hashed email should sit at the center of the identity graph. And, and frankly, those were great bets to be made. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I signed up for something the other night on Facebook and it was interesting. They said, in order to get a free download, give your best email address. And I had (laughs) never heard, I had never, or maybe I never paid attention to what said best. So I gave him my junk email address. Yeah, of course. Of course you did. did. And, And, but I didn't get anything. Um, well, that's, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one of the things that's really fascinating about this that whole chain, right, is that it's really important for a marketer to build a lead capture engine that goes from like call to action to an action pretty quickly, smoothly. And, you know, the customer on your side demands a frictionless experience, right? So if that same field said, Kelly, I'd like your email. Hey, by the way, how many kids do you have? Um, what's your mortgage? And hey, you know what would be cool if you could share your net worth, right? <laughs> like that would be a terrible experience. Even if they were going to use the data, you're not giving that up. And so the challenge that a marketer has now is to say, look at all the weird things a consumer could put in at this moment. Of, you know, it's the moment of truth, right? It's like I'm getting my prospect or I'm getting a sale or I'm getting an app download. It's all tied to an email. I want it to be frictionless. I want it in easily, so I can't ask a lot. But from that email alone, as a marketer, I got to make sure that I'm kicking off a safe, secure, and mutually beneficial relationship. And so that's like a really interesting thing when you think about that moment of truth. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever seen give us your best email address. It kind of threw me off. And I was like, I'm not giving you my best one. I'm giving you my junk one because I mean, I get a lot of emails. So it was, it, but I never got the free download. And then they, I just, it was a good try. And the opposite effect happened, which is pretty funny. I don't know why you wouldn't have gotten the email unless it maybe went into junk. Soldiers. But um, yeah, that's a funny tactic that I've not heard. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I just I and I do have what I call my best email address. Yep. And oh, I yeah. And I give it to my best people. <laughs> right. Right. So, so that's where it kind of helps that we do have, you know, those different levels of emails. We just know which one is the most actively used. And if we've never seen an email address before within our, you know, entire billion record database, that to us is a very high indicator of potential fraud or, you know, a risky email coming through. So that in itself is a huge, you know, red flag for us. Well, and then another thing that I've noticed, and um, I want to get to a case study, but another thing I've noticed is like people make jokes about like, you know, say you're an attorney or an accountant and you're like John Smith at um, yahoo.com or, you know, Mary Smith at um, even like hotmail.com. It shows a lot of people think it's very unprofessional. What do you guys think about that? In terms of just having first name, last name like that, or? Well, just using like at yahoo.com or at hotmail.com oh. instead of like John Smith at johnsmithcompany.com. 
So, oh, okay, I got it. So, uh, so a lot of small businesses will use a personal domain as opposed to uh, creating its domain. Um, I think it's very easy to create a company domain email address these days that um, it's not that it's unprofessional, but my perspective is that is that people would be more concerned about the reputation of the organization. Is this something that the person's committed to doing? Are they going to be in this business for a while? Like if I'm looking for a lawyer and I need an estate planning, I want a relationship with somebody. I want to know they're going to be around. And so I probably would pass on it. So I'm not sure that's unprofessional, but I think it's telling of their commitment to the business that they're in. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Oh, I like that. And, now yeah. people people go even further. They judge individuals based on what they're using, right? Oh, yeah. So they might, right? And yeah, that I don't think is necessary. I don't do that. Some people are attached to their first AOL email address and they are glad they still have it. He's talking about his wife, That's who true. very much still has her, her AOL AM. email, and we don't. Neither of us understand why. Well, I, that is true. I don't. Understand <laughs> My husband never had a personal email address until probably two years before he died. Like he just always just used his work. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, dude, no, do not. Uh-uh. <laughs> but you know what? If you're, if you're over 50, the first email you got was a work email and you, you know, you, when you got a personal email, it was tied to your ISP and anytime you change your ISP to change your email. So, you know, your work email was stickier. And so, especially if you work for yourself, a lot of people over 50 use a work domain as their personal email because because of that. Um, you know, certainly, you know, Yahoo was the probably a game changer in, in helping somebody get in. Gmail really took it to another level so that you could have a portable address that went with you wherever you went. Yeah. But that was a game changer because from a PI perspective, up until then, the best PI was, a, was your home address. But somewhere around eight years ago, if you want the stickiest PII, you fell to your a, your a domain, a, a, a Gmail address is the stickiest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's have you guys discuss a case study where emails and fraud like came together. Collide. Yeah. Yeah. Collide. <laughs> so let me. How about I set the stage and you take the case? Sure. All right. So again. There's a couple places where email and um, fraud com- collide. And so the two places that really are obvious, though, is at registration, right? So you bring in a frictionless experience. So you're not asking much. You're asking an email. That's about it sometimes. You might ask an email and a name. You might ask one other field, maybe an email and a phone number, but generally email only. And so that's coming into your database. And at that point, you don't know what you got. Like you could have anything, right? So that's one place. The other place that that email is really important in thinking about fraud is at account changes. Suddenly you're a brand and somebody comes in and says, hey, um, I uh, forgot my password. Here's my new, can I, here's, you know, or I want to change my account tied to a different email address. And that's where you get concerned about account takeover, right? So I want to set the stage that kind of, those are like kind of two places. And if you don't get the registration part right, you open yourself up to coupon abuse. You open up else to uh, chargebacks on your credit card. You open up yourself up to return abuse, 
which, you know, people don't think of those fraud as like fraud that has like a victim, but it's, it creates a tremendous amount of money. So I want to set that stage. And then Katie, why don't you talk a little bit about ad registration? Yeah. So we have a very large uh, fast food client of ours. Uh, and so they were having a big issue with every registration for their app across the world received a coupon for a free breakfast item. I'm trying not to say what it is, but essentially they were getting, you know, many, many millions of new registrations and realized because they were not doing any email validation that the majority of those emails were fake because they weren't actually validating. They just simply, you typed it in, you pressed enter and the coupon popped up on the app. And so they came to us. I don't know how long it's been now, almost, I think probably five or six years. And we have eliminated all of those bad emails from getting through at least the undeliverable emails. And so now what we've done is we've taken it a step further to actually look at not only the deliverability of the emails, but the age and activity of an email. And so we basically were going through the process of analyzing the potential um, for fraud. And so we took all of their email addresses and saw a huge subset where we had never seen the email address before. So it might actually be a deliverable email, but it could have been created today or it was a disposable domain or whatever it may be. And so we actually are not only going to be able to help identify those fake emails, but we may be able to stop the potentially fraudulent and risky individuals from creating accounts and causing problems further down the line. Right. So we were able to be coupon abuse. And when you, what's super interesting about the email address is when you get an email, there's a lot of information that is part of the exhaust of an email address, right? So there's the email address, we get the IP address and we get a domain. And when you look at those three things, we could look for, right, the email activity. Have we ever seen it before? right? Is if we have, is its usage abnormal, right? So the way the velocity or the frequency of this email kind of tracks, is it abnormal? From an IP, we can look at the IP. Is this IP a, a an IP that was recently thrown up? Is it is it a reputable IP address? Is it an IP that makes sense location-wise, you know, where it should be? From a domain, we we know that there are Domains that accept mail, there are domains, domains that don't accept mail, there are domains that are fraudulent. What is the age of the domain? And so we're able to look at all of those things, apply some machine learning, and come up with a fraud score that is um, really uh, compelling for um, our our clients and our brands for addressing and keeping fraudsters out of their database to begin with. Okay. And you just said something there that like, I was like, ding, ding, ding. You said machine learning. So there is so much talk about chat GPT and AI and machine learning. Um, what are your thoughts about like, like I played with chat. I played a little bit with chat GPT. Are people going to say, um, tell me what the best email domain name is I can do to commit fraud or something like, like, have you guys been playing with chat GPT or seen anything from AI and machine learning that way? Yeah. So, I mean, I, so we haven't done a lot of work with chat, um, but as a consumer, I've been on the other end of a machine that is, that is controlling my conversation. And I think on the rare occasion, it feels helpful. And on often it feels like an obstacle of getting to where I want to be. So, so I find that interesting when I think about the machines, the really interesting thing is it's like machine against machine. Can, 
can companies keep their machines ahead of the fraudsters machines, right? So like, how do we identify, is it a bot generated email as an example, or sequential emails, or an email associated that we call tumbling of an email. And, you know, we built technology to stay ahead of those gimmicks and tricks that fraudsters will use, right? And so from a from a chat, you know, where can chat come in? And I think there's something interesting about, you know, I get a fraudulent email, do a real-time call, come back, and maybe the chat bot jumps in and starts to ask a few more questions. Um, what but- I think is fascinating with chat, you know, GPT, GPT is just the fact that it can be used for both good and bad, right? And so I never really thought about it. Like, I just keep reading about it and I think it's fascinating. It's brilliant how quickly it's able that, you know, algorithm is able to ingest data and spit out what is the, I think, most um, accurate and robust answer that exists. It's fascinating, but I didn't really, I haven't really thought about it from the sort of negative fraudulent side of things. And I think it's it's interesting. Um, the technology is brilliant. And I think that algorithms and machine learning, um, you know, they're going to change the world. And I think that it's hopefully going to be used for good. And hopefully we can use it to combat bad as well. Um, so I think it's just the nature of the beast that those people that are unethical are going to continue to do that. And we'll continue to protect businesses and ourselves from, you know, those that try and do that, but it also is going to help allow, bring a lot of benefit on the, you know, on the positive side of things as well too. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, I did something, uh, the other day I was like, um, how to prevent fraud and embezzlement. And it gave eight really, really good steps. I read it. It was great. Yeah. And then, um, but then the thing is, is like, we need the human side of it. And I was totally. on a website the other day and a chat popped up. I use chats sometimes like, you know, it's just easier. It yeah. was the worst chat bot. I think I yeah. have ever, like some are so much better than others. Yeah. Right. But what's interesting is our, our, our requirement as a consumer has evolved dramatically, right? You know, 10 years ago, if the chat came up, a chat bot came up a little bit, you might be, oh, gosh, it got me to want to go. Now you're kind of mad. It doesn't know what your problem is already, <laughs> right? You know? So, like, when I call my, I'm a I'm a frequent flyer in an airline, and I did 100 flights a year, four years in a row. So, you know, I had my own, I could call up and, Mr. Davis, how are you? And they know who I am, and they know the flight I have that day, right? But, you know... If you call now and they don't know that, you're kind of irritated. But, you know, 15 years ago, you wouldn't be concerned and you wouldn't even be concerned there was a privacy issue. But now you you require it from the brands you trust. And if it's a brand you don't trust, you're like screaming privacy problems. So it's kind of a really interesting place where we are in terms of how brands need to meet consumer requirements. Absolutely. Um. So like... uh. We also talked about this before, fraud and marketing. Like, <laughs> fraud wants to stop fraud. Marketing wants to sell more. So, again, when those worlds collide, how does email help or hinder? Yeah, so, I mean, it's super fascinating. At the end of the day, they both have, both departments have the same, they, they want the same thing. And they want, and a marketer's charge is to acquire customers with a positive ROI. Fraud could destroy the ROI, right? So they do work hand in hand, but it goes to that that immediate relationship. 
a marketer wants a frictionless signup. If I were running fraud, I'd love to like, like if I'm a bank and someone's taking a information about like, tell me a little bit about your HELOC program. I'm going to want, can you, can you give me your address, your name, your mortgage company, you know, how much is left in your, how, how much is left on your mortgage? Uh, what's your home value? But if you ask all those things, you can't get anywhere. So where we come into play is we look at email as its proxy. And if you want to talk more about like where we take it from there. Yeah. So I, it's interesting. I actually think that the marketing department and the risk department have two different initiatives. They obviously want the best for the company, but marketing is looking to grow the number of customers in their database. Right. And the risk team is trying to prevent fraudulent transactions and fraudulent individuals from getting through. So there's kind of a, a different sort of goals, but they're all trying to meet the same you know, higher level company goal. Um, but it's interesting. So one of my clients, um, they are kind of like a Midwest bank. And we recently did a test of their, um, all of their data. And we are trying to kind of upgrade them to our full fraud solution. And what we found is that the individuals that signed up in person at their branches, the level of fraud was like less than 1%. But when we looked at some of the affiliates that they were using online to generate new customers, and maybe those numbers were way higher than their in-branch, there was a huge percentage of fraud that was coming in and they had absolutely no idea. And so there's a way that this sort of fraud API concept, the solution can be used to achieve both goals, right? Because in the marketing side, you want to bring in new customers, but you want to make sure that they're legitimate customers. And that's what risk wants too. And so kind of marrying those two sort of goals together and, you know, utilizing the service um, sort of, you know, solves for both. Yeah. And the, the other benefit of where we bring it in and why email is so interesting is as a marketer, we have many sources where we get those leads from. And if I could get immediate feedback from a fraud perspective on those on those leads, then what I'm able to do right out of the gate is I'm able to, number one, return leads that are fraudulent, and number two, evaluate my sources. So I don't have to throw out all these sources. I could throw out one subsource of a source so that I could continue to keep the volume I need in my program and not cut off the whole program. So really using an indicator that happens up at front is, is, is really valuable. And we talked about this also in the pre-call was when we have distance between yes. a victim. And so what you just said, Katie is like, yeah, when the people don't have to come into the branch, it's, I, I want to kind of say it's whack-a-mole. Yeah. But yeah. It's, yeah. Where's it's into the branch? It's like, you know, you you can see them, you can, you know, see how they're dressed. You know, bias can come in though. Like sure. we can it, just recently I saw someone who um I'm gonna say didn't look the part. And that's where bias comes in. Whereas if you just have an email address, so yeah, it's just, it's better if they come into the branch. Some people can't come into the branch. Um, some people don't want to come into the branch. And then, so do you get like from the marketing, say a hundred great accounts, but two bad accounts. So you're at net ahead 98. Yeah. But the in-person, you know, you're only going to maybe get 10. Right. 
Yeah. And so like to be able to just with an email address, truly just an email address and, you know, IP or whatever additional information you have, name and postal, to be able to identify earlier on in the process that, hey, we've never seen that email before. It's not tied to the geolocation it's supposed to be. I mean, to be able to identify that at an earlier point in this, you know, onboarding process is going to help the, you know, prevent the headache for the both marketing and risk groups down the line. So it really, it, there's a huge benefit there. Absolutely. But but also, Kelly, it's like that, that whole digital transformation from a consumer perspective. I mean, you know, pre-pandemic, I know so many people who never used a Starbucks app. They went in. But then pandemic hit, the only way to get a Starbucks is with the app. And they found it pretty easy to use and they keep using it afterwards. But more importantly, as I think about the small taco stand in our community, you know, they, um, pandemic hit, they're out of business that they couldn't solve this problem. Like, like no one was coming in to buy tacos. So then they started doing delivery. They started doing takeout through the phone and it worked, but they couldn't handle the volume of takeout through the phone. And so they threw up an app. Suddenly they are taking payment online with people they don't know. They just want to make a great taco, which they do. But now they're in the business of fraud prevention. And they didn't want to be in that, but they are because it's much, it's, it's more likely that someone is willing to commit fraud on a small business if they can't see the owner and the people are working hard. You know, it just, it feels victimless. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And as we've talked before, there is always a victim. Always. Oh, yeah. Yeah, always. I mean, I just think the simple, you know, I'm stealing identity so that I could open up a bunch of fraudulent credit cards. Well, that person who gets the alert that their identity is being used, they are notified. They're spending hours notifying every account and it's a headache and it, it creates stress and it's a problem, even if it doesn't cost them money because the credit card is protecting. It's costing somebody money, um, yeah. but it's a real headache. And time is money. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And stress is no fun. No, 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 not at all. So um, when you go to a company and I'm just going to say a mid-sized company, um, which maybe mid-sized is, I don't know. So, okay. You go to a company. A lot of people don't, do you think a lot of people don't understand the value of their customer lists quite yet? Like monetize why? Wise. Yeah, I think, and especially now with the economic environment that we're in, there is so much value in somebody that is already signed up to receive information from you or has already purchased from you in the past. It's basically invaluable because right now the cost of new acquisition is expensive. And with cost cutting and budget restrictions, I mean, you really have to value your current database and make the most of it. Um, and so I think it's even more important than ever to make sure that you re-engage with those individuals because, you know, there's nothing more valuable than somebody that's already raised their hand and said, hi, I'm interested in your product and your services or whatever it may be um, versus having to go out and buy, you know, net new customers. It's expensive. Uh, so I think there is, I think a lot of times people just kind of ignore those unengaged, you know, individuals in their database and there's so much value sitting there that they could get out of them. Yeah. Absolutely. My sister has a, an online business and, you know, her email list is gold. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it is. 
It is. That's that's what Kate told J.P. Morgan. <laughs> or Frank. I'm sorry. Frank told J.P. I was saying this on a podcast the other day. It's like, OK, so there's um, Frank and then there's um, Marcus, which is like Goldman Sachs high yield savings account. Right. I want like Betty or Sally or like, you know. But yeah, we kind of went off on a tangent about like, right. you know. but no one could use Karen as a name anymore for their company. <laughs> no, 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 no. Poor Karen. So the audience comes here, obviously, to learn a lot. Um, and I consider that our fraud professionals are, you know, engaged more than most. Um, what are some best practices you can give for emails? Sure. So from a, like a mid-sized business perspective? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say a couple of things. Um, number one, you know, double opt-in is, 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 you know, kind of the gold standard. Um, number two, um, communicate early on with a great message, right? Make sure you have the data you need to make a great first impression because the most open email is the email just after a purchase, either confirming the purchase with the purchase information, but use that real estate to set the table for the rest of the relationship with a great message, right? So it requires you to understand a little more about the user behind the email. That's two. Um, third, communicate with your database on a regular basis so it doesn't go stale. And then lastly, don't ignore the, the folks who, didn't, who were non-responsive, right? Find a way to re-engage with them. Have a re-engagement campaign. Um, and so I think those would be like four really easy tips to operationalize. Okay. And then I'm going to go to you, Katie, is, mm -hmm. um, as a person, as a professional, are, is yes. there any sort of email etiquette that you would suggest? So I actually did a webinar about this a couple months ago, and it was marketing with empathy. And so I think even more now than ever, I think, I mean, I don't know if the pandemic created this, but there's something to be said about creating sort of a personal connection and empathizing with where somebody is at in their life that is super invaluable. Um, and so to be able to, you know, say, you know, right now there's layoffs left and right. So, you know, if it's a, if it's indeed, and they want to send out an email, like, listen, we know it's hard times, like here's, you know, 15% off for the next month or whatever it may be, just sort of empathizing with where the world's at, with where an individual is at, um, I think is a super sort of important way to communicate and talk to your customers. Um, that's something that, you know, I was an email marketer prior and I would try and, you know, bring that into my marketing strategy, you know, today if I could. Yeah, it's a super, it's a super interesting thought. Now, Kelly, one of the other ways I would take that question, and I've had small entrepreneurs company, their businesses have just grown. And they've asked like, how do I manage all the email that's coming around my company? Like, like my inbox. And I'll talk to them and ask them a few questions. And look, here's the, here's, here's what I always tell. There are some cultures, they CC everybody, right? And so one of my, one of the things that will improve efficiency is only CC people who need to be on the CC. And if you are never email to a group of people without putting the person you're actually asking, you know, 
too. So if I'm sending an email to Katie, but I'm CCing somebody else because I want to know, but I got to ask Katie so that I don't get 37 responses. I get the response because if you CC everyone, everyone responds, it just creates this, this really trail of a lot of extra emails. So really, you know, being more thoughtful about if you feel like you need to CC a hundred people, it's probably a Slack conversation and not an email conversation. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and Katie, you also brought up a really valid point. Well, a couple, I mean, more than a couple, but um, I'm starting a new newsletter mm-hmm. and I'm working with my daughter, who's my DA and the empathy is, and um, also the, the care and graphic of it. But I love how you marketing with empathy, because I just wrote a chapter on investigating with empathy. So and we have all these just heard this morning and, you know, this is a little bit dated, but Microsoft just laying off 10,000 employees. And yeah. these people who have been Jane Doe at Microsoft.com forever, they're it's just it's gone instantly. Yep. Yeah. It's just gone instantly. So having your own personal email is so incredibly important unless you're, you know, Bill Gates or Elmo, as we like to call Elon Musk. Um, um, It is so incredibly important to have your own personal email because I had a friend recently who thought she was very secure in her job and she came in one day and they got rid of the whole department. It wasn't personal I mean, it really wasn't, but it, it how do we not it take is. it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, you've I got to have that personal email. Especially tied to your LinkedIn. So you need to always have your personal email tied to your LinkedIn because you just never know and you always want your network or like you said, your extended network, your second, third connections to be able to reach out to you you know, through there. It, it is the ultimate place to, you know, network and hopefully find your next role. So yeah, I agree. Well, and you can't really have your own brand if you don't have your own email address. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have my sister, I gave it to her mm, numerous years ago, her name.com. She has a, you know, it's not Mary Smith and she just didn't even think of it. And she's kind of a big deal. So um, I just, every year I renew it for, cause you never know. What, you know, if her business were to be bought out, like she's, yeah. So I I think it's a really good gift. So what haven't I guys, have I asked you guys that you want to get out to the audience? Um, I always ask this question. What haven't I asked you? So I think, you know, the question really when from a fraud's perspective is like, is this like really hard to do? Like, like for a brand, like for me to, is it hard for a brand to put a protection up in place right at that moment of truth? Like, is this like going to be a monumental effort that's going to require a ton of engineers? You know, what does it take and, and, and how do you make it easier, Katie? So, and I think that your questions have been great um, and really, you know, on the mark, but I think you're right. So yeah, a lot of brands are sort of, you know, hesitant to get started with a fraud prevention solution. And I think what's great about what we've created is that not only can a really sophisticated fraud platform use our service, but so can a small, you know, company that's never had to deal with fraud before. We've created this risk score. That's essentially a score from zero to a hundred that, you know, can give you kind of a quick answer. Does this 
you know, email look potentially risky, risky or fraudulent, or does it look absolutely legitimate and valid? And so you can kind of utilize the service at whatever level sophistication that you're at. So whether you're a young startup or you're a direct brand that doesn't know much about the fraud space or you're, you know, a bank, you know, fintech company that knows everything about it, the solution exists for everyone in between. Um, and so I think that it's it's not as daunting as it may seem. Right. And actually quite easy to implement for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So and then my last question, what's the last thing you guys Googled before you got on the call? Oh, oh I just I, <laughs> go ahead. Is it the same thing? No, I doubt it. Okay. I, <laughs> I Googled our lunch menu because I ordered I ordered lunch for the team today. So I was Googling the menu, the menu for another taco place near the office. I must really enjoy tacos. He really uh, loves tacos. I do. <laughs> El Pastor, way to go. Um, and everyone enjoyed their lunch. But that was Good. my last, that was my last Google. And mine randomly, unrelated to this podcast, was the story of that company, Frank. I had not heard about it. And I was just reading an article um, about it because one of my coworkers brought it up. So that was the last thing I Googled and randomly ties into this podcast, which is funny. It is unbelievable. Yeah. And JP Morgan, if you're out there, maybe you need to call at data because I don't think that would have happened had they validated some email addresses. Do you? It, it would it would not have happened if they really just maybe had us do the due diligence in about 20 minutes. We could have helped them. Yeah. Yeah. That, oh that was there's some pretty I mean, I've been doing after 21 years, I would have spotted the holes pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, Phil and Katie, thank you so, so much. I look forward to having you come back. We're going to have lots of um, links in the show notes. And uh, this was great. And you know what? Email. We use nonstop. This is a really important topic. So thank yep, you very nice. much. Thank you so much yes, for having you, us. We really appreciate it. Wasn't this a timely episode? Are you checking how many email addresses you have and which is your stickiest? JP Morgan should maybe check out at Data and Phil and Katie, don't you think? And can you believe how they met on a plane and she eventually started working with Phil? Things happen like that. I'm starting my newsletter and there's a subscribe button in the show notes. Please subscribe for all things fraud. I'm finally catching up on podcast listening and once again, Pivot tops my charts. What tops your charts? Thank you for all your support and listening. Time is money and let's say you guys make me very rich with all your listening. See you next week.